Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You may have noticed that most of the biggest rock acts in the world aren't really that young. I mean, Green Day, middle 40s, Dave Grohl is creeping up on the half-century mark. Uh, Trent Reznor, as we sit here right now, he's 52. Pearl Jam, early to mid-50s. Average age of U2, upper 50. Springsteen is 68. McCartney's 75. Rolling Stones, do you have to even ask? Now, I'm not ragging on old rockers. This is not about ageism. I just can't subscribe to the whole rock is for the young BS. If these acts can continue to do what they do well into their pension years, well, you know what? All the power to them. Part of the reason so many people are still into these groups is because their bodies of work are incredibly strong and still sound great. I mean, most of the Beatles music is still brilliant, even though much of it is more than 50 years old. The other reason these acts still attract attention is because, well, let's be honest, there haven't been that many newer acts that can replace them. I mean, where are all the superstar rock acts of the 21st century? This isn't to say that they don't exist, because they do, but the stars seem to have, um, well, gotten smaller, not to mention fewer and further between. No, no, wait a second. Maybe I should clarify what I mean by superstar. I'm talking about an act that sells music by the tens of millions of units. I'm talking about concerts by acts for which tens of thousands of people will crawl over broken glass to get tickets. I'm talking about acts who managed to create a deep catalog of hits that have been released over a period of years. And, and I'm talking about acts where there's a consensus by millions of people that they are, in fact, great and worthy of everyone's love and devotion. But thanks to changes within the music industry, and because we music fans are now consuming music much differently than we have in the past, everything's been turned upside down. We need to look at things this way. Why is it so much harder to be a superstar rock act in the 21st century? This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. The Strokes with Last Night from their 2001 debut, Is This It? Highly acclaimed, very influential, world-renowned. But when compared to big acts from the previous decades, hasn't been the same for them. On only two occasions has one of their albums reached the number one spot on a national album chart. Once in the UK and once in Australia. And while The Strokes can attract big crowds, can they fill an arena or a stadium? Yeah, probably not. Now, this is not a put-down of the Strokes. They are fantastic, and they were instrumental in revitalizing rock when it looked like we were going to be swamped by boy bands and Britney Spears. But if you compare them in terms of overall stature to, to a U2 or a Green Day or a Pearl Jam, they kind of fall short. We have done a terrible job of generating new superstar rock acts on the same level that we used to. Now, don't get me wrong. We still have major international acts, and we'll play material from many of them over the next hour. But we'll also look at how so much has changed within the music industry and with us. The old definition of what a superstar just doesn't apply anymore. This could be very provocative. 
Hello again, I'm Ellen Cross, and I can already hear people saying, hey, dude, what about Arcade Fire? They can tour headlining arenas on their own, selling out most of them. Absolutely true. Juno Awards, a Polaris Music Prize, a Grammy Award, a Brit Award. They are easily one of the most acclaimed bands of the last decade and a half. Magazine covers, blogger coverage of the wazoo, an excellent concert draw, a dream resume. But when compared to the superstar acts of the past, how do they stack up? Well, a little anemic, to tell the truth. For all the accolades and positions atop best-of lists, Arcade Fire really hasn't sold that many records. Their first album, Funeral, is sitting around somewhere sales of a million copies. Worldwide, one million copies. Their second, Neon Bible, has yet to be declared gold in the U.S., which means sales are less than half a million. The Suburbs? About 1.4 million worldwide, and that's after winning all those awards, including a Grammy and a Brit. Uh, Reflector, call it 700,000 worldwide. Okay, wait a second. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're doing this wrong. The music industry has changed drastically since 2000, so we need different metrics. Album sales and chart positions are, you know, so 20th century. And that applies to everyone, including what we call heritage acts, those artists who started their career in the last millennium. That would be Pearl Jam and Green Day and Nine Inch Nails and Metallica. None of them are selling records in the same numbers they used to in the past. It's not like U2 is ever going to release another album that sells 20 million copies again. Nobody is. We're never going to see those sorts of album sales numbers ever in the history of the universe. Things have been dropping at a double-digit rate for years. Remember how digital albums were supposed to make up for the drop in the sales of physical product? That's the worst section of the market. Digital albums have been dropping at a rate of 25% per year for the last couple of years. So... If we can't use sales of music in our definition of superstar, what can we do? Well, maybe a better way to evaluate an act's popularity is its place in the public's consciousness. And this is where we need to examine the concept of consensus. Now, let me give you an example. Back in the 1970s, if there were 30 people in, let's say, a grade 10 class, three kids would be country music fans, seven would be into the pop music of the day, and the other 20 would be KISS fans. And they were KISS fans because everywhere they went, someone would tell them that KISS was the greatest and biggest and best band in the world. They heard it on the radio from their favorite DJ. They read it in magazines. They saw it whenever they went into the record store. They heard it from their older brothers and sisters. Everything, everything reinforced the message that KISS was the best. But that was in an era when access to music was tightly controlled by record labels and radio and printed media. They were the filters, the cultural gatekeepers, only letting through certain music which they curated on our behalf, and to our benefit, of course. That meant fewer acts to choose from. They only let so many through, which made it easier for an ordinary music fan to pick a favorite. And it made it easier for the musical powers that be to manufacture consensus on which acts were worth our time, money, and devotion. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we were manipulated into liking crap. 
although that was a big part of the strategy, it was, however, a time when it was easier to join a tribe that liked a certain band. Today, though, those traditional gatekeepers are gone. With the internet, the power lies with the individual music fan. You are free to pursue whatever musical interests you have, and nothing can get in the way. Manufactured consensus? <laughs> You're in charge. You're your own A&R person, your own music director, editor, and curator. You don't need anyone to tell you what to listen to. And if it turns out there are others like you, well, that's okay. It's nice, just not necessary. Well, somebody told me you had a boyfriend who looked like a girlfriend that I had in February of last year. It's not confidential. I've got potential. The Killers. Let's put them up there as a genuine 21st century superstar rock act. Their Hot Fuss album has sold over 7 million copies worldwide, and their entire catalog has moved somewhere north of 22 million units. And we do have consensus with the killers. They can fill arenas by themselves on both sides of the Atlantic. They are perfectly fine as a festival headliner. They're on the radio all the time. And get this, Mr. Brightside from that first album is the most streamed rock song in the history of streaming in the UK. Now, I'm going to give you another superstar band that has emerged in the 21st century. Ready? Nickelback. Their song, How You Remind Me, was played on the radio more times than any other song. And I repeat, any other song between 2001 and 2009. Billboard has slotted that as the fourth biggest song of the first decade of the 21st century. And while it is true that Nickelback was formed in the 90s, they really didn't break through until the Silver Side Up album of 2001. That record has sold more than 800,000 copies just in Canada more than 900,000 copies in the UK, more than 2 million in Europe, and more than 6 million in the United States. Worldwide, the number for that one album released in the 21st century is about 10 million, which is pretty damn close to old school superstar numbers. Overall album sales, somewhere north of 50 million. And when Nickelback goes on tour, they sell just about every single show. A tour can gross over $100 million. So, love them or hate them, you got to include Nickelback as one of the few superstar rock acts to emerge in the 21st century. Let's continue to explore these ideas and attitudes and what constitutes a superstar rock act. More on the concept of consensus right after this. Welcome back. We're trying to explain why it's so much harder to be a superstar rock act in the 21st century. A big part of the answer seems to be that consumer choice is now unlimited and unfettered. We make the choices when it comes to what we want to listen to and who we like. And with all that individual power, there's more disagreement, or more correctly, less agreement on which acts should receive our time, attention, and money. Instead, the public's attention has been spread thinner and thinner and thinner. So, yes, The Killers and Arcade Fire and The Strokes get a lot of attention, but that hasn't translated into the kind of music sales and concert attendance that we used to see with the biggest bands of all time, the Heritage Acts from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But like we saw with the Killers, this does not mean there aren't instances of mass consensus that look a lot like the old days. Here's another one of my picks for a genuine superstar rack from the past decade. And it might surprise you.
Gorillas, the virtual band created by Blur's Damon Albarn and cartoonist Jamie Hewlett. They were conceived in 1998, but their debut album didn't come out until 2001, and it sold, wait for it, more than 10 million copies worldwide. That was followed by Demon Days in 2005. That one sold more than 6 million around the world. Since then, though, subsequent albums have sold substantially less, just like we've seen with just about every other rock band on the planet. Now, mind you, the argument could be made that Gorillaz had just gone beyond their best before date and they expired like any band will over time. And being a virtual band, it was, you know, difficult and expensive for the band to tour in a conventional way, which could have impacted things. Another issue that could explain why 21st century acts haven't been able to scale the same heights as older ones is because those old acts are still with us. There's plenty from the first and second generation of rock bands who were still going concerns after decades. I mean, the Stones and members of Pink Floyd and U2 and the Eagles and the Who and Dylan and Paul McCartney. They're still making records. They're still touring, which means they are still vying for our attention and money. But things have changed drastically for them, too. See, in the old days, you could have a couple of hit albums and expect them to reliably sell year after year after year. For example, every single album by The Doors used to go platinum every year. The Beastie Boys used to sell 2 million copies of License to Ill every year. And groups like the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac could retire because every six months or so, a big fat royalty check would arrive in the mail as the result of sales of records that they released decades earlier. That's not happening anymore. These royalty checks, which were like retirement annuities, have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. The only way to maintain cash flow and lifestyle is to get back out on the road and tour with everyone else. And yes, a lot of the audience is made up by members of their original audiences who want to relive their youth for a couple of hours. But if you look around at any one of these shows, there's a lot of younger people too. Fans who discovered the Axe music through streaming or maybe their parents' or older siblings' collections. Not only do new acts have to compete with each other for attention and consensus, they also have to compete for time and attention and money against the biggest names in music who just refuse to go away. Not that this is a bad thing, but it does make the marketplace a whole lot more crowded. U2, a band with appeal across at least three generations and one that continues to bring in tens of millions of dollars with their tours. Hundreds of millions of dollars, actually. But like virtually every other Heritage Act that is a band from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that is still a going concern, they have seen their back catalog sales drop off. Sales from old records aren't what they used to be. So, got a tour. Make up for that revenue, you know? I mean, why do you think they did that Joshua Tree 30 tour? A couple more things to consider when it comes to the shifting attitudes towards music. In the old days, kids wouldn't have anything to do with their parents' music. Today, though, parents and their kids have much more in common musically than ever before, especially on the rock side of things. Second, people who came of age musically in the new millennium aren't nearly as tribal as previous generations. Technology has made it possible for them to sample music from all genres, from all eras, it's not uncommon for people to constantly switch between, you know, rock and then hip-hop and then over to pop and then classic rock, dance, EDM, whatever else. 
Younger generations of music fans are far, far more ecumenical in their tastes, unlike the old days where people tended to pick a tribe and stick with it. This change in attitude, which I believe is extremely healthy, has been reinforced by the long, slow death of the album. Now, the concept of the rock album, this collection of songs carefully recorded and sequenced and meant to be consumed as a whole, really began to take form in the middle 60s. And then, in 1967, came the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band record. This was a game-changer. And from then on, the music industry's main focus was no longer on low-margin singles, but on high-margin albums. And the album became the basis of everything in music. This is what we bought. And as a result, money flowed through the industry like water. Billions of these 12-inch pieces of plastic, and then cassette tapes, and then 8-tracks, and CDs were sold. The release of an album turned into a retail event that was anticipated by fans with distribution tightly controlled by the record labels. And this was great for them. In fact, they were enjoying such fantastic profits that they gradually phased out singles. Their attitude was that, hey, if you want just that one song from the artist, then you got to buy the full album. Doesn't matter if there was one good song and 10 pieces of crap, pay up. It was a really arrogant and cynical move on their part. But just as the single was being phased out, the internet was phasing in. With Napster and all the other original illegal file sharing programs, music became one big a la carte buffet. What, you want me to spend 20 bucks in a CD just to get that one song I like? <laughs> Screw you, I'm going to download the MP3. And that was the beginning of the end of the album era. Another big stake through the heart was the introduction of the iTunes Music Store on January 9th, 2001. No longer did we have to buy the full album, but we could legitimately and legally buy just the tracks we wanted. Album sales started to fall. Then came streaming. Instead of albums, people are streaming playlists. Album tracks get almost zero traction in the streaming world. The pop world understands this, which is why when a pop artist prepares an album, it's basically a collection of songs that will be released as a parade of singles. The album? It's just a rapper. Hip-hop stars also still release albums, but many of them maintain a steady drip, drip, drip of new material, showing up on each other's records, dropping mixtapes and remixes, things that keep fans constantly occupied and their names top of mind. Rock acts? Not so much. They, and we as fans, are still conditioned to spend a long time waiting between albums because... Well, it's just what we've always done. Linkin Park, an old-school-style superstar rock band who have sold, wait for it, more than 100 million records in their career. The next issue we have to deal with is streaming. The way people stream music is having a big impact on the creation of rock superstars, or lack thereof, actually. And I will explain why next. This show examines the changing concept of what constitutes a superstar rock act in today's music environment. As we've already seen, the rules of the game have changed. Because we're in a digital era, because we're not buying our music on pieces of plastic like we used to, and because the album as a concept is dying, 
things are much different than they were in the 20th century. The biggest shift has been the introduction and acceptance of streaming music services. It's taken a while, but streaming is now the greatest source of revenue for record labels. Over half the money they make comes from streaming, with physical product like CDs offering up less and less and less every quarter. In mid-2017, we learned that the labels were making $150,000 U.S. per minute from streaming. And even though Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, and all the rest of them are unprofitable, thanks to the licensing deals that they've been forced to take, which sees them pay out more than half of all they take in, and that's before any other expenses, streaming is now officially too big to fail. It must continue because, well, the music industry has just gone too far to turn back. But we need to unpack things to figure out why this has impacted the concept of superstars in rock. First of all, Let's look at payouts to artists. A single stream pays a fraction of a cent, much in the same way that a single play on the radio pays. This is minuscule compared to what an artist and composer gets for the sale of a single digital file or of a CD. But because fewer and fewer CDs are being sold, this means the amount of money flowing to artists and composers is shrinking. This has decimated the middle class of musicians, the traditional breeding ground for superstars. Today, we have these huge acts on top, a big gap in the middle that's almost entirely empty, followed by a huge underclass of struggling performers who can barely make ends meet. They spend so much of their time doing things other than creating music that it's a challenge to be creative and to experiment and to develop and mature into something great. And this isn't just for rock acts. This is for all musicians. If they do record, the songs are lost leaders, calling cards for who they are and for the gigs they might play. And playing live is one of the few steady revenue streams. Artists end up on a treadmill of recording and touring and recording and touring. And before long, they're creatively and physically and mentally spent. It's not the best way to develop the next generations of musicians, right? Consider the Pixies. They're still together after their 2004 reunion. Their recorded output pales in comparison to the number of tours they continue to stage. And that's because the money is in the gigs. Not in any new songs they may have written since they got back together, like this one. The Pixies with Bag Boy from a 2014 album entitled Indie Cindy. All right, so rock bands have to play the streaming game instead of relying on selling us pieces of plastic. But there's a problem with that. If you look at the top 200 most streamed songs in any given week, it's very, very, very rare that you find any song by a rock artist. Maybe some Imagine Dragons, a little Coldplay, but that's pretty much it. Rock fans have yet to adopt streaming in meaningful numbers. The medium is totally dominated by pop, R&B, and hip-hop songs. You know, Drake, Ed Sheeran, The Weeknd, Justin Bieber. All right, fine, so what? Well, think about how the recorded music industry works. The goal is to make money from music. And once you identify where that money is coming from, that's where you spend all your marketing dollars. So, streaming, generating more than half your revenues, and if pop R&B and hip-hop songs are behind those streams, where do you think the labels are going to focus their money and attention? Uh-huh. And since there's only so much money and attention to go around, someone will have to do with less or without. And at the moment, 
That's just about anything with a guitar. There are hundreds and hundreds, thousands of fantastic and emerging rock acts out there. But without the marketing help they used to get in the old days when rock was selling tens of millions of CDs, you can see the problem. Any money that is available goes to performers who already have a track record, like uh, Muse. When God decides to look the other way And a clown takes the throne We must find a way Face the fire Couple more things about streaming. If you look at what people are listening to, it's overwhelmingly to singles. Album tracks on streaming services get almost zero attention. And since most rock bands are still all about albums, let me ask you this. What's the point of recording non-singles if so people are going to listen? Again, we go back to the idea that the album is slowly dying. Now, I'm not saying that this is your experience, but if we are looking at things from 35,000 feet, this seems to be the reality. I've been saving the most insidious thing about streaming for last. It is changing the very nature of music, and it has to do with our ever-shrinking attention spans. There are tens of millions of songs that can be streamed, far more than anyone could ever get through in a lifetime. This is a supply that will never run out. So if we're listening to a stream and we run into a song we immediately decide we don't like, we skip it rather than expend the psychic energy necessary to learn to like it. Spotify monitors are listening. They know that a quarter of all songs are skipped in the first five seconds. 29% skip a song in the first 10 seconds. And the most important number of all, 35% skip before 30 seconds go by. Now, clearly, we have commitment issues. Now, why is that last number, 35% in 30 seconds, why is that so critical? Because Spotify does not pay out for a stream until 30 seconds have passed. So the goal for artists and composers and producers has become to retain our attention for those first 30 seconds at all costs. And this has changed the very nature of songwriting. Now, in the 80s, the average instrumental lead-up to the vocals of a pop song was around 17 seconds. Now, it's less than five. No more long build-ups. Really bad thing for rock songs when you think about it, right? More songs are starting with the chorus. More hooks are jammed into that first half minute. Songs are front-heavy with familiar samples. Producers have basically reverse-engineered the listening habits of pop fans and started writing songs in a way that plays into their impatience and their short attention spans. One final thing. Sales of electric guitars have dropped by a third in the last decade. Young people just aren't as interested in learning to play the guitar as past generations. One theory is that since they grew up on smartphones and tablets, they're gravitating to music creation devices that don't take years to master, devices that live on laptops or things like Ableton. How can you have rock without a constantly refreshing supply of guitarists? Where are the new guitar heroes going to come from? Jack White, title track of his 2014 album, Lazaretto. Let's frame this in terms of the long game when it comes to music. The first half of the 20th century was dominated by jazz in all its forms. It was the music that pushed Western culture forward. 
But then in the 1950s, it was pushed aside by this new thing called rock and roll. And rock and roll became the leading form of music for the next 50, 60 years. Now, rock has been eclipsed by hip-hop. That is now the driving force in popular culture. This does not mean that rock or jazz aren't any less important or that they're doomed to die. It's just that when it comes to calling the shots on a major scale in terms of culture, it's not their call anymore. It's all about hip-hop. Hey, you know, to everything there is a season. Human preferences in music are always evolving, just like the industry that produces music. And sometimes when things change, definitions of success change along with them. And we as fans just got to learn to adapt, you know? More on my website, which is a journal of musical things.com. It's updated every day with music news and information. Subscribe to the free newsletter so you're reminded of the cool stuff that gets posted. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And remember that the show is also available as a podcast. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio and subscribe. It's all free. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 